Thank you very much, guys. Man, I'll tell you what, I know it's common sometimes for pastors to not sit in for all the different parts of the service other than the teaching, but I would, I would hate to miss either, uh, either time of getting to experience worshiping with these guys, led by these guys. Um, this is a, a, a little unpaid advertisement. Um, some of you over the years have shown some real interest in the idea of, of learning to teach through or understand Jesus through the Jewish lens. Um, what I kind of jokingly called the rejuification of Jesus. Um, well, I'm getting to teach that the next two nights, Monday night and Tuesday night, out at Eagles Bluff. They have a new chapel out there at Eagles Bluff. So they've invited me to come out at 6.30 and teach for about an hour or so on the rejuification of Jesus. If that's something that's a topic that you would like to kind of see the root of a little more, um, they've, they said we could invite anybody we wanted. So I'm inviting all of you. Um, that if you would like to come um, out there 6.30, Monday night and Tuesday night. All right, as we're jumping into, we're going to run into this regularly, this concept in 1 Peter. In fact, we will today. Um, in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Notice right here at the very beginning, as we've discussed already, gone through verse 1 across two Sundays, um, discussing this idea of the identity that God gave Peter, both the name and the title, Peter and Apostle, are both given by Jesus to, um, to Peter. To those who are elect, elect exiles, we're going to talk more about that here in a second, um, and we've looked at those places and what they mean, <clears throat> but as we start, I want you to notice how clear the Trinitarian teaching is here in Peter's first letter, right here at the very beginning, the understanding of God as three and one is very clear as he divides out these three aspects or roles that the, that the triune God plays out, the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, obedience to Jesus Christ, and sprinkling with his blood. And the Trinity is not just some academic concept for us to ignore. It is not some spring that could come out of the trampoline and we could still jump. Um, this is a leg of the trampoline. You pull the Trinity, and you don't have Christianity anymore. Now, based on the thief of the cross, um, who is one of the few people who we know for sure what his judgment experience was, um, understanding the Trinity, having a deep doctrine of the Trinity, that your Trinitarian theology may not be all that deep or expansive, that doesn't keep you from being saved. Your knowledge of the Trinity would not keep you from being saved or having a right relationship with God. But apparently, if there is no Trinity, we are not His people. The Trinity is a vital understanding. Which of those four things? The foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, the obedience to Jesus Christ, the sprinkling of His blood. Which of those four things do you feel like you could pull? Which of those four things do you feel like you could cut and still be the people of God? And the answer is, none of them. All four of those are absolutely necessary. Apparently, we are not God's people without the truth of the Trinity. So it says that we are chosen and exiled, elect and exiled. So what about the exile situation? Well, we don't want to overteach that. I don't want to overteach that for a couple of reasons. One, we just studied the book of Daniel for a little over a year, which is about faith and exile. And we don't want to miss that. But notice that being in exile is not somehow noble in and of itself. Being in a bad situation is not in and of itself noble. The question is what happens while you're in that time of exile. 
while you're in that time of wilderness, while you're in that time of suffering or trials or oppression? What are you, what are you learning during that time? What is happening during that time? The Jewish people, for example, spent 70 years in exile to Babylon and weren't learning. Daniel comes and confesses to God, we're not getting it. And God says, yeah, and I'm not letting you out of exile yet. So this is the, this is the picture. We, we need to grow in that. And for each of us, when we look back on this last year, man, what a great time for us to look back on and say, what comes out of me in exile? Now, I don't want to overteach the idea that, that, that what we experienced during COVID was similar to the exiles. Um, um, it's certainly, that would be a little dramatic. But the idea still is, what do we learn there? I do a survival camp out every year with a group of students, and at the end of it, we always ask the same question. What comes out of you when you're squeezed? Do you discover that, that have you discovered that during this time of being isolated or alone or, or not being with brothers and sisters, did you fall more deeply into the sin patterns of your life? Did you isolate? Did you disconnect? Are you still isolated and disconnected? Maybe online today. What's the, what is going on and what comes out of us? Were we overwhelmed with fear? In the midst of it, there's justifiable things for us to be concerned about. There always is. We're not foolish. At the same time, where did we look for our help? So these are some questions that we always need to be asking. It's not noble to be exiled. It is noble to seek God in the exile. It's noble to seek to grow and do the right thing when we face that, whatever it is. And the first Peter is a letter written to a group of people who are suffering, struggling, exiled, persecuted, and so we're going to learn, we're going to hear this over and over again as one of the main themes of 1 Peter. And I want to take a moment and talk about the idea of elect, election. <clears throat> There's really, the doctrine of election is just, is just terrifying to Baptists. I've never fully understood why. Um, I don't know what it is about that word. I think, I think just the fact that I just said, I'm going to talk a minute about the doctrine of election. Some of you are already like, oh no, what's he going to say? What's he going to say? Oh no, what's he going to say? You're already super nervous about the concept that I'm not going to say it the exact way you would say it, which is terrifying to you because then either you're wrong or I'm wrong and both of those are terrifying to you. And so for us to really figure out like, what, do, what am I going to do? We're going to get to another word here in a minute. <clears throat> That's the only scarier word, although it's part of the doctrine of election. But I want to take a second and point out a little bit about this doctrine. It is, it is not hidden in Scripture, this idea that God chooses. In fact, <clears throat> I love the fact that John Wesley, um, who was no Calvinist by any means, no hard-line teacher of election and predestination, John, Cal uh, John Wesley, who would have been on the opposite end of that spectrum, wrote this, election can be explained thus. We must... Believe on the one the Father has sent. We must endure, the end, endure to the end, and we must live like the holy children of God. Okay, that's what it means to be saved, according to Wesley. I agree with that. Then to paraphrase him, he then points out in the next paragraph, none of these are possible without the promises and appointment of God. So it, it isn't that somehow we just grunt these things out. That we just figure it out or we solve it or we do we the, the point is none of this could ever be earned by human merit. None of this. Believing in the one the Father has sent could not be something we merit, not be something we earn. To endure to the end can't be something that we just tough out. To learn to live as the holy children of God is something that God is going to need to do in us. Our natural temptation is because when things seem contradictory to us, we assume they are contradictory. That's not how that works. More likely, we are just ignorant. 
more likely when we see things like this taught together like they are in Scripture. And that is the line, by the way. You can stand in a lot of different places on this conversation. But the line that means you've walked off the ship and you're now in the ocean is when you think somehow that any of this is accomplished by human merit, that we've earned any of it. None of these things are things that when God looks into the future, He doesn't say like, He doesn't ever see, oh, I like how He does that. He's really worth me saving because He's so smart. Or she's, she's so talented. I better say, no, that's not how that works. So let's dive into this question of according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, this phrase. First of all, if you notice, us being elected in, as exiles is not something that's an accident. It's not random. It's not arbitrary. He wasn't throwing darts at a board with our pictures on them. God instead chose intentionally, according to something. He chose according to His foreknowledge, His perfect understanding. God's in the Greek, pro-gnosis. Not, that's not a hard Greek word to understand. Gnosis means knowledge and pro means before. This is not tough. For knowledge. In fact, it's not merely his omniscience, which is his all knowledge, but his foreknowledge, the knowledge that is in about something that's coming in the future. In fact, you'll notice prognosis pronounced the way we pronounce it in English is where we get the word prognosticate. Um, prognostication, some of you know that SAT word. It's a reference to know about knowing in advance. It's what fortune tellers claim to do. They don't, but they claim to do it. It's what psychics claim to do. They don't, but they claim to do it. It's what Punxsutawney Phil claims to do when they pull him out of the ground on February 2nd, right? He's the prognosticator of prognosticators. That's his, he tells you whether you've got a little more winter or whether spring is coming soon. Now, this is actually pretty helpful. We're going to see where this is used in a minute um, about Jesus Christ as well. The language of prognostication, of prognosis, indicates something, a decision that you're making now because of what you know in the future. Because you know something about the future, you make a decision now. That's what foreknowledge really is all about. The idea that, for example, if you actually trusted Phil um, to tell you something about the future, which I recommend against, um, one year we studied and it turns out he, he is right at 50%, which when you've got two choices... 50% is pretty good. Better than I do, um, I'll tell you. So that is a, uh, it's not bad, but it's not very valuable for making an actual prediction. If he says there's going to be more winter, I don't think that that's enough reason to go buy a bunch more firewood. That may, because he may just be wrong. But if you trusted him and you trusted that his foreknowledge was actually correct, you would make different decisions based on the input. So if you believe in the foreknowledge, if you believed, oh, he says there's going to be spring soon, well, then you probably would you'd make different decisions than, than if you think there's going to be another month and a half of winter. Does this make sense? This is what foreknowledge means. That's what it's about. And in this case, we're talking about the fates of human beings chosen to be his people living in exile by him. And who else could do it? Who else could make those decisions? Who else would have the information they would need? See, when we run into this question, I think one of the things that troubles us, which is understandable, is that so much about the Christian faith is rational. It doesn't, <clears throat> it doesn't require a lot of trust, at least it doesn't for me. Almost every claim of the Gospels, every claim of who Jesus Christ is, very little of that requires me to any special level of trust, because it makes sense to me. This is how it has to be. This is what would work, and I can't think of any other ways that would work. That makes sense to me. But especially in three areas, I find that I have to step into this understanding 
that I have to assume that God knows what He's doing because I don't know what He's doing. It's not hard for me. I've told you before, I grew up with professors, so this isn't tough for me. I've been surrounded by people smarter than me my whole life. They're allowed to be experts. When my doctor or my mechanic or someone tells me something about their area of expertise, I don't even bother to argue with them because I don't have any idea what I'm talking about. And it would be silly to do so. If humans can be experts on things, then it certainly seems like a foreknowing, almighty, omniscient God gets to be an expert on things. And one of them would be how human fate plays out. But we all question it in that moment, understandably. When one of our friends is miraculously saved from cancer and another one dies. When the chemotherapy works for one and not for the other, and it's the exact same situation. When there's a car accident and one or two people survive and we think it's a miracle, it's a miracle, no one should have survived this accident. What about the other people who didn't survive? What's the, what's the logic here? What's the pattern here? And we're always trying to place a pattern on that, and it's really tough. And we're not ever going to fully understand this because we don't have the foreknowledge of God the Father. We don't understand what are the consequences of this person surviving versus this person. What does that mean for the fate of mankind for the rest of human history? We don't understand that. We couldn't possibly know that. And yet he does know that. He claims to know that. And so that puts him in the position as the only one who could handle what it means to make those type of calls. None of the rest of us would have it. Think about the other areas, by the way. Human suffering, judgment is another one. I don't understand how God is going to judge. Luckily, He does. And prayer. I don't understand the mechanics of prayer. God foreknows everything I'm going to ask in advance in a prayer situation. Why do I need to ask it? Well, He foreknows I'm going to ask it, so that's important that I ask it so that He foreknows I'm going to ask it. But that's a that very quickly creates a mechanical situation that doesn't really work in my brain. So I have to trust that when God tells me, no, listen, pray. And I have to trust that He knows what He's talking about because I don't. There's, there's maybe several of those. There may be different ones for you. But that's one of the things that is tough for us about this understanding of God's foreknowledge. Well, if He knew, why did it turn out the way that it did? It sure looks from our angle sometimes like it's bad. It looks from our angle, you could totally understand why this makes sense to us when we struggle with this. We go, but, but this looks bad to me from my perspective. Uh, a few years ago, a couple of years ago, my son uh, Mark had a disagreement with some of the stuff going on at the university, some decisions that the university had made where he is. And so he, he like brought some attention to it and had some conversations about it. And, and he got to have, and he handled it super well, super humbly. He was glad we were going through Daniel at the time. And so then we, he went, at some point, the president of the school said, you know what, why don't you come meet with me? And this is a, this is a great picture. So they, they come and they get to meet with him, uh, just a couple of them with him. And the president says this, listen, if you had the entire picture, I'm pretty sure you would agree with me. But you don't, and I can't tell you the entire picture. See, that's the power of the authority of knowing the right perspective. Yes, from my angle, this looks bad. But from the angle of the one who knows, if you could see it, teaching about this a few years ago, we actually brought in a tapestry. Karen Nolan brought me a tapestry. And I showed you the back of it. And the back of it just looked like a mess of fabric going all over the place, just cords and lines and strings all over the place. And then you turn it around, and all of a sudden, all those things make sense. There's a picture being created. God's the only one who's able to look at the fabric from the front. He knows what all of it is being created into. His perfect foreknowledge gives him insight that none of us have. 
And it may not make us happy, the choices that he makes, but that's probably because we can't see the whole picture. We can't fully understand. And there is a step of trust that God knows what he's doing. Either, as, as I think David Self was saying at the end of the last service, either it all means something or none of it means anything. And us trusting in God to do this is hard. We run into it at the end of the book of Job for sure. At the end of the book of Job, as we see God asking Job questions, do you have the perspective that you need to question my decisions? And it's not mean, it's just realistic. Again, growing up with professors, that's not that hard for me. It's his painting. He decides what to paint. No one can tell him no. He's the one who decides. But God had the blank canvas. I'm going to create. I'm going to paint what I want to paint. He gets to determine what it is. And no one can tell him no. He can include any level of freedom in his creation that he wants. He knows what he's going to paint. And most importantly, why? He knows what our role is. Peter will let us know, by the way, that this is not merely about us. It was about the plan for Jesus Christ as well. So we're in good company, at least. 1 Peter 1.20, he, Jesus Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest, which just means revealed, in the last times for, the, for your sake. So notice the same word, foreknown. Jesus, even the plan for the salvation of mankind, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, was part of the planning before the creation of time. Paul connects these two ideas, the Apostle Paul does, election and foreknowledge, maybe most powerfully in a key passage that many of us know at least part of it. It's in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We keep going all the way through 30, we begin to see how he links these concepts. Romans 8, 28 through 30, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Look at this, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. I think maybe one of the things that's scary to us about the doctrine of election, and even more scary, the word predestination. You, you want to make Nat Baptist nervous, just use the word predestination, right? So, so one of the things that we, as we look at this, one of the things to help us understand this um, is this idea that, that, that maybe God, we were raised with this idea of a God who was just looking for us to mess up. And then that doesn't seem fair. Wait a minute, you predestined this and then I messed up and then you're going to smack me for it? That's not fair. Instead to understand, here's what God's foreknowledge means. I think we get that mostly from our dads. I think this impression of God as a God who's just waiting for us to mess up comes mostly from the, the, our dad's um, because, because maybe when we were kids, the da- our dad sent us to go get a wrench and we came back with pliers, right? I need you to give me a wrench, kid. And we come back with pliers and he's under the car and you're handing the wrong thing and maybe he's mad and maybe he curses at you and what's wrong with you? Is there something wrong with you? I said a wrench and you bring back pliers. Don't you know the difference? And go try again and we go back and now we're all flustered and upset. So now we bring back something really wrong, like a hammer. And it's like, now he's really mad and maybe he curses at us and calls us names and is frustrated and impatient. And he just gets out from under the car and he storms past us and goes and gets the tool he wants, communicating clearly what great failures and disappointments we are. And he goes back and works on it. And I think we take that and we apply that to God. We put that on God somehow. Well, let me tell you what it means that God, this is the foreknowledge of God the Father. When God sends you to get pliers, He already knows you're coming back with a wrench. He already knows. He's not disappointed. He sent you to go get pliers knowing you were coming with a wrench. By definition, if He wants something done well, He has to do it Himself. 
None of us are capable of that. If he tells us to go do something, that means it doesn't need to be done well or rightly. By definition, he knows us too well to send us. His knowledge, his foreknowledge says, it's okay, I can send them in grace to do these things, and when they mess it up, I've already got it covered. It's fine. In fact, a passage in Romans shows us there are certain things that he has to do. He doesn't ask us to do it. He has to do them. That's a part of what predestination means. Look at verse 30. Those whom he predestined, we don't get to do that, only him. He called. He does that, not us. Those whom he called, he justified. We don't justify. Not even close. Those he justified, he also glorified. See, these are, these are tools he didn't send us to get. Because he knew they had to be done right. And so he planned before the creation of time for some of these things to be handled in a way to be clearly done right. It sets us free to not be terrified when God sends us for a wrench. We're not terrified that God just can't wait to slap us around. But instead to recognize, he knows I'm going to mess this up. Every bit of it. We don't want to fall into the error of dividing these things out, nor prioritizing one or the other. God knows all things, and He foreknows them. He chooses whomever and whatever He chooses, and He knows who they are, and He knows why they are. That's how this works. And He knows how He does these things in ways that transcend our understanding. These two sovereign freedoms of God, they aren't dependent on any outside force. They are both His fully and simultaneously. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He chooses. He is sovereign. And he foreknows. These are not contradictory to him. They feel contradictory to us. And I think that's just because we're not that bright. Boy, and we're going to get this idea of chosen over and over again in the book of first, in the letter of 1 Peter. I really think that Peter likes this idea, and I think I understand why. I think I understand why Peter comes back to this idea of chosen, because I think Peter wanders around just like the Apostle Paul did, just like Matthew did, in constant wonder that he was chosen. You ever experienced that? If you don't, I encourage you to experience the wonder of the fact that God chose you. If you don't wonder at that, you may be narcissistic. If, if you don't ever go, I mean, what were you thinking? I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't do any better than me? What were you? I grew up with a, uh, my best friend. I was five, and he was seven when we met. We were next door to each other. Um, his name is Jason, and I think I have a picture of him from college. Um, I didn't want to do any of his uh, Navy SEAL pictures because, uh, and, or his flexing pictures because, um, one, it just it would intimidate the daylights out of me to have him up there. He, um, uh, Jason was five. <clears throat> I was five. He was seven. We met. And we were kind of Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. We lived in the booming metropolis of that dead zone between Nacogdoches and Appleby, Texas. So, um, kind of in between. so we spent the vast majority of our time outdoors. Uh, we only had three TV channels, and two of them were the same channel with different commercials. So... So we, we were not inside very much at all. The vast majority of our time was spent outdoors, and we had thousands upon thousands upon thousands of hours together, mostly with Jason testing himself and me being dragged along behind, because from childhood, that was his thing. He would find a challenge that he couldn't do, and then he would just do it all day until he finally accomplished it. And then two years younger, me would come along and consistently fail at it and, and try to impress my older friend. And, and that was, we had, we had, again, thousands of hours, story after story I could tell. Um, now, he died and when he was 36, uh, a little over a decade ago, and, and uh, that was a, it's been a huge loss in my life to lose Jason for a lot of different reasons, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, I wrote my articles that I have on my website about grief one year later to, to really wrestle with all of that. But here's the point I want to tell you. So Jason was always very athletic. 
So by eighth grade, he was 5'10", as tall as he was going to get, and so then he started beefing up. And by eighth grader, he could bench press as much as most of the coaches could. Um, and, and he went on, like I said, to be a Navy SEAL. When he died and they went to go clean out stuff out of his house, um, the, one of the wonders was the 100-pound dumbbells that he, that he did curls with. Again, I said dumbbell, not barbell. 100 pounds in each arm. Um, was what, that's what he worked out with when he was doing curls. Um, we, used, we used to have all kinds of tricks. A few of you got to meet him when I knew you uh, long enough ago. Um, we, we would do these little, they were, they were Jason tricks that, that people, we would, with those of us, very introverted, very quiet, and you would go like, hey, Jason, show this. And then he would, you know, hey, do, do the handstand push-ups. And he would just pop in the middle of the room out in the handstand and just crank out as many push-ups as you wanted him to do. Or, or uh, another one was to, hey, let me hit you in the stomach. And you could, anybody in the world could hit him and just you break your hand if you hit him hard enough. And, and so he was physically such this person. And by the way, at the first line I had at his funeral was, if Jason can die, the rest of us are too. If you have any illusions of, of immortality... You, all of you who knew him, knew. If he can die, we are all going to. It was a very sobering time. Here's what the story I want to tell. Jason, when we were in school, he was an eighth grader and I was a sixth grader. And I was never called um, to be the team captain, nor was I ever picked first um, to be because I was still growing tall and lanky and had big old boats for feet. I was one of the few people in the world who could strike out at kickball. Any of the rest of you <laughs> run into that? I could actually strike out at kickball. Um, I would fall down trying to kick the ball because coordinating three things at once was just too much for my brain as my body was growing just taller and taller. I used to be tall and skinny. You, you just have to trust me on that. <laughs> so, <clears throat> uh, and so I was terrible. And so dodgeball was a nightmare. I could barely run or dodge or do any of that kind of stuff. And so, but Hawthorne, Jason would always be chosen to be team captain because that's what the coaches used to do um, was choose the two most dominant boys and have them be the team captains. Um, and, uh, and so I was always chosen last. Typically, I was chosen last um, under normal circumstances. Me or Jimmy. Jimmy hadn't hit a growth spurt yet, and so we were the two uh, dangerous ones of like, fine, you take Chris, I'll take Jimmy. That was kind of how it always ended. And, uh, and so that was, the, that was the experience. I think picking teams is from hell. That's why we don't ever do it at this church um, under any circumstances. Um, but every once in a while, Jason would be chosen to be team captain. And when Jason was chosen to be team captain, the coach would say, Hawthorne, you and Schwarzenegger, y'all are the team captains, you pick your teams. And Jason would always say, I'll take Chris. Now, he knew I was a liability to his team, but it didn't make any difference to him because his friendship to me was more important than the game. His friendship with me was more important than what other kids thought of him picking me first because it usually got some chuckles. He didn't care. He wanted to experience it with me because I was his best friend. Now, I don't want to, again, I don't want to over analyze this, but let's think about it from this perspective. I was chosen not because of my merit, but because of the stance, the position, the power of my friend. I like being chosen. I love being chosen first. Anyone who knows me knows I have a great high level of fear of missing out. I've got the FOMO bad. <laughs> I like being chosen. I like being asked. I want to be involved and Jason would pick me first because of that. I like that, and I think the Apostle Peter liked that. And I think that's why we run into chosen so much in this book. No matter how else you feel about it, or how else you struggle through the doctrines involved, to recognize that there is a God who foreknew you and has chosen you to be His. He isn't willing that any should perish. This is the God reaching out to you right now. The one choosing you now. Imagine being turned into a whole new people and a whole new life. 
In the end, this is the issue chosen because God is the one who knows and He knows us and He knows best. And number two, through the sanctification of the Spirit or in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, we want to be careful um, that you don't get carried away with that word in. Um, the Greek word there is en, E-N. It's a primary preposition denoting a fixed position. In one of the commentaries, it said in, by, with, etc. And I thought, etc.? What is this word? So digging into it, here's, for, here's some of the different words that the word in is translated into. It just means here, some version of here. Here you go. About, after, along, among, because, before, beside, between, during, here, over, through, under, when, where, while, within, in, by, with, etc. It can be translated into those words. So I encourage you, when you, if you're ever in a sermon and the pastor really wants to build a whole bunch of doctrine on the word in or through or from or before, you might go, you know that could be any of those, right? So we don't want to build a bunch of doctrine here. Let's focus instead on the concept of the sanctification of the Spirit. And here, Peter and the Apostle Paul are apparently on the same page about the role of the Holy Spirit here. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 has almost the exact same words. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Holy Spirit and belief in the truth. Again, you'll notice how once again, these two concepts are intertwined. Belief in the truth, chosen, saved, sanctified. So what is sanctified? And the easiest term is to be made holy, but I think that can throw us off sometimes. It means more that and maybe less. I think it's more the idea of having been made holy to learn to live in holiness. That's really, I think, the better picture, the process of getting used to having been justified. When we are saved, when Christ died on the cross and we are chosen, we are justified. And now we've got to get used to that because we don't have any idea how to live that way. Any of us who have been married or maybe had kids or maybe just having parents, we have to learn to live according to the truth of our situation. We all get married, and none of us have any idea what that means. None of us have any clue what that's going to mean down the road. No one knows what that's going to be like. And so we've got to figure that out. We are transformed in such a way that we become more like what it means to be married, even though we can't get any more married. That's the idea. That's something we get used to that's already in place. We have a right relationship with Almighty God. He has given us a gift of a right relationship with Him. Of course, that's going to change us. If it doesn't change us, you may not have the right relationship with Almighty God. Learning to live a life worthy of, reflective of, in alignment with the changes that God has wrought in us already. It's a change of nationalities. We learn to live as a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. Philippians 1.27, Philippians 3.19, Ephesians 2.19 talk about this idea of living as citizens. So, for example, Philippians 1.27, let me reference this one. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I want you to see this phrase, let your manner of life, in your Bibles, it'll have a little note there if you've got the ESV, and it'll say, or behaving as a citizen. Some of your Bibles will just translate it that way because that's the more precise def, def, uh, translation. Only let your behavior as a citizen be worthy of the gospel of Christ. See, we have a new citizenship. It's the citizenship in the kingdom of the gospel of Christ, and we should act that way. When we change, if you change citizenships, you should learn the language and the, 
the rules and the ethics and the culture, the priorities, even the dress of your new homeland. It's unnatural to have this big a change in your life and to show no evidence of it. It's unnatural for Christians to not be maturing in the faith, learning to live as holy people. Of course, making mistakes all the time, stumbling through all the time, but being sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what is normal, is that the Spirit is doing that work in us. Of course, our lives should be reflecting the holiness of God all the time, more and more. Saying no to the things that we know are sin, and yes to the things that we know are virtue. We say no to wrath, abuse, resentment, sex outside of the marriage covenant, unfaithfulness, lying, theft. These are the kind of things that, that of course, in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is teaching us to hate these things, to despise these things even in ourselves, to make, create the kind of lives that avoid these things, and instead to live as chosen people, the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, and for obedience to Jesus Christ. Now, obedience biblically really only makes sense within the context of love. You can be forced to capitulate within reason, of course, but obedience carries with it a decision, a submission, a devotion. John 14, 21, Jesus said, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So let's go back to that idea of a changed citizenship. What if a new country took over here? Imagine if an oppressive foreign government took over the United States from within or without, and the first thing they did was change the language. Now, I mean the actual spoken language. They totally changed it. And we had to learn it by law, that the law required us to learn this new language by law. It'd be hard. We wouldn't want to do it. We would resent it and be bitter about it. And the problem is even success would just bring more resentment. Getting good at speaking their language would just make us more mad, and yet we would still have to do it. I think this is an important understanding when we are tempted to ask lost people to ask the world to behave according to the rules and guidelines and culture of Jesus Christ. That's just going to feel oppressive to them. That's just a foreign tongue being taught to them, forced upon them. Of course, they resist that and rebel against that. Now, take that same picture, and now imagine that in that culture, you fall madly in love with someone who's come over from that culture. You're crazy about them. You absolutely adore them. They are wonderful, virtuous, awesome, godly people. This person is, even if the rest are oppressive. How does that affect learning the language? All of a sudden, that hard work becomes a joy. You're trying to look at new words. You want to create an intimacy there. You want to understand each other. You want to get this person to communicate their love to you and you to be able to communicate your love for them in this new language. The language is still difficult. The rules may still be tough, but the motivation is very different. Success is now not resentful. It is blissful. This is like loving Jesus and being loved by Him. We resist and we resent changing for someone we don't love. That's one of the questions I sometimes get as a counselor and sometimes as a theologian. How much change should I have to do in a marriage? Or how much changing should I have to do in a relationship? Or why does God call for me to, to give all these different things up to follow Him? And I always say, I'm pretty sure He tells you to give those things up once you follow Him. It's not something that we go, oh, I need to conform my life to Jesus Christ and then I can start loving Him. It's not going to work out very well for you. 
Stop looking for the lost to obey. Don't ask them to, and in some ways maybe we shouldn't even want them to. Because trying to live the Christian life without Christ, to meet all the demands, the natural self, and then effort to live a life right without Christ is just going to make you angry. And more and more angry. C.S. Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity. Isaiah talked about it way back in Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Recognizing that for someone who is in rebellion against God, even righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, like a filthy rag. It doesn't serve any positive purpose. So our first task in loving Christ is to accept His authority. We want to motivate people to learn to love Christ. That's not so we can trick them into following Him because our real ultimate goal is for them to follow a bunch of rules. Wow, not even close. Um, after having Beckett Cook here the other day, um, I heard somebody discussing it, and I'll, I'll reference this again in a second, discussing it and saying, I was just annoyed by the fact that He wants me to convert so I can be straight. I was there. He didn't say that. What he wants you to do is know Jesus. And that's the same thing that would be the case. He wants you to know Jesus. That's, that's, the power of conversion is incredible. When we talk about something like conversion therapy, it's not the therapy that we think has power. It's conversion that we think has power. For learning to follow Jesus, that's what carries with it great power. That's what we're passionate about. Our first task is loving him and then to accept his authority. To submit to him because of the love he has for us. Listen to this. He loved us first. We're going to memorize a verse together. 1 John 4, 19. We're all going to memorize it. Ready? We love because He first loved us. That's it. That's the entire verse. Ready? Ready? We love because He first loved us. Okay, once more. We love because He first loved us. All right, take it off the screen. Bunch of cheaters. Ready? We love because He first loved us. See? Memorize the Bible verse right here. This is a, such an important verse. We obey because we love Him. We love Him because He first loved us. That's the proper understanding here. We have been chosen through the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with His blood. So when does Jewish practice call for sprinkling of blood? There's a few places. Passover at the door frames, the altar, the consecrating the priests and the sin offerings, and one other time. And I think this is the one that John is I mean that Peter is referencing. Because in those cases, you're sprinkling an altar or a doorpost. Here, there are people being sprinkled. Exodus 24, 3 through 8. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and of all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They're a bunch of liars, but maybe they think they will at this point. Maybe they're delusional. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in the basins, and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, significant language there, the book of the covenant, not just the book of the law, the book of the covenant, and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. No, they won't. <clears throat> but, again, they're excited now. They think they're going to. They make this proclamation. 
This is the fulfillment of the original Abrahamic covenant now played out in the Noahic covenant. You are my people. My laws will be your laws. They've now been given his laws. This is now new. You are now going to be my people following my national laws, my rules. The Constitution, I wrote it. It's for us to, it's for you to have. And look at this next phrase. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. See, Moses sprinkles his people with the blood of the sacrifice to declare them the recipients of the covenant. This is who you are. You are now God's people. Covenants are always ratified with a price. Often that price is blood. I think very clearly this is what Peter is referencing. That now we have spiritually been sprinkled by His blood at the cross. And in doing so, not only have our sins been forgiven and made white as snow, but we have now been made His people. This is important to the Jewish way of thinking. The idea of being sprinkled by blood is, is kind of gross and unthinkable to us. But to them, it implied the covenant. Hebrews 12, 24, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. This is not just for the city. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We've been sprinkled by the blood, and it was shed for the redemption of our sins, and it sanctifies and cleanses and purifies. We've been known and chosen, set apart, washed with the opportunity to obey this is the theology of the sacred. It's what I'm going to be talking about tonight to the students and parents. The theology of the sacred. We live in a world that no longer recognizes the sacred. The world can only understand something as valuable as common or as trash. Those are the only two options the world has to offer. They've given that up because only God can make something sacred. And if God isn't allowed to speak, and He's not allowed to speak into you or to you, then nothing about you is sacred. That's what expressive individualism means. No, no, you don't tell me about me. That doesn't come from the outside in. It comes from the inside. Individualism, out. Expressive. Expressive individualism. It is a lie from hell. Human beings cannot make ourselves sacred. We cannot make ourselves special. We need a God to declare that about us. We need a divine being to declare that. When you engage with this, you change that identity, and we begin to change, and that Holy Spirit is working in us. The theology of the sacred says we are known, and even though we're known, we're chosen. Chosen not because of ourselves, as Victor Hugo says, but in spite of ourselves. We are known, and still he chooses us. He knows we can't play dodgeball, and yet he still puts us on his team. He knows we're going to come back with a wrench, and he still sends us to go get pliers. We are known and still chosen. It's such a powerful picture. Set apart, washed, the opportunity to obey, prepared spiritually to be used in sacred things as sacred vessels. This is the theology of the sacred that is so powerful. He's changed our identity. We should seem different. Another interaction with Beckett the other day that I got to hear about afterwards was a young lady who came up to him prepared to fight him. And afterwards, I heard her telling somebody else, he was just so nice. Like he was so kind and so gentle and clearly so cared about me so much that I couldn't make myself be mad at him. She actually used the word, he was so kind it was disarming. What a great agent of peace. What a wonderful word to use about someone to say, he clearly cared enough about me that I couldn't even make myself hate him. 
I was prepared to. Who needs grace? Who could use peace? Ladies and gentlemen and boys and girls, this is the gospel. This is the gospel of old that we sang about. The grace and peace that comes from the triune God. The three and the one. The Father's knowledge, the Spirit's work, and the Son's blood. Do you know them? Do you know these things? Do you know this triune God? I wish that I could create this in your lives. I can't. I wish that, would long to be able to just cause that. I can't. Your parents can't. Your church can't. No one else can but the triune God. You must receive them from God. We may, maybe the rest of us can live in the truth of them, and hopefully that's inspiring. But in all actuality, it is the gospel presented through the foreknowledge of God the Father, who looked out and knew you would be here today. Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that Spirit that is drawing you to come and pray, to accept the free gift of His salvation, His adoption. The adoption that was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And for the opportunity to obey Him. We all serve someone. and might as well be the one who loves us so much. So I will instead ask the blessing that God has provided here at the end of this verse. So if you'll stand. And I hope you're listening to the work of the Spirit. If you think of yourself as filthy and unlovable that God couldn't save you, then I would say, understand His blood is just that powerful. If not, if that's not where you are, if you think, I don't need this, then I think you need to really look at your life. Whatever it is, my prayer is that God's peace and His grace would be with you. Pray with me, and then when we're done, if you were welcome to, if you've already gone through the welcome home team process and you're ready to come join this dysfunctional family, you can do that in a second. If you need to find someone in the room to pray with you, that would be great to make something right. Or if you want to come pray up here, we'd love that as well. Father, thank you for the opportunity to serve you, to be a part of what you're doing, to abide in you as you abide in us. Father, all this language just to say, thank you that you love us and that you loved us first. And God, I pray for anyone who doesn't know you. I pray that today would be the day of salvation when they would realize just how crazy you are about them and how this was all planned in advance. You didn't want anyone to perish. I pray we'll accept this free gift. Thank you, Father. And I pray over these people that your grace and peace may be multiplied in them. Amen.